everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. My name is Danny. And I'm Giacomo. And this is our 35th episode. Danny, so what, what the hell is up with this weekend? Huh? What are you talking about? What, you, what am I talking about? So I, I found it particularly ironic because usually I'm the one that like wants to go out and be social and hang out with like lots of groups of people and the other one's like, no, nah, fuck that. We're hermiting up. We're not seeing anybody. We did that all week and we're doing it on the weekend. So then this week and you're like, hey, what do you want to do? We got any plans? I'm like, yeah, let's just stay home and chill. And, and what did you do? What, what, what was like, what was the very first thing you said Saturday morning? I don't remember. You had like three different things lined up. We, we, we were like hanging out with friends and family. We were all over the place. We're like social butterflies. That's because I haven't picked my nose up from the grindstone since January 1st. And I haven't seen my friends or family. I've been a complete shut-in and I need to see them or I'll go crazy. Oh man, it was like in me. Meanwhile, I'm like, you know, I think we could use a little downtime and be like hang out. Like, you know, just just sort of like decompress and you're out there just like socializing even harder than you were having your nose to the grindstone. You definitely took me by surprise this weekend, I gotta say. Well, there was also food at the other end. This so. is true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> especially like when somebody's on prep, like if you know how they say like follow the money trail and you'll figure out like mm-hmm. how things happen. Like when you're on prep, follow the food trail and you know exactly why and how every decision is made. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um... This was a good few weeks, actually. The last podcast, I think we recorded it like exactly two weeks ago, which holy moly, it's happening, guys. It's happening. You're going to get regular podcasts and this 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 episode. It proves it. Shh, don't say anything, Giacomo. Uh, anyway, <laughs> prep continued to go well for the first two weeks of prep, like solid kind of fast progress, actually. And then this last week... Uh, like fat loss progress slowed down significantly that water retention that we've told you guys about started and I had two really crappy workouts so as of today uh, we're adding some more food to me because that's I just can't maintain that but I'm excited that we started off aggressively because it was hard but motivating to watch some changes happen quickly just like it's a good confidence builder and now I'm certain progress will slow. Um, but it was also a nice reminder, like, oh, you don't want to push too hard too fast because remember how crappy that feels. Um, so, yeah, excited to see what's in store. But then in other news, we have been busting our butts, um, like creating content and just sort of setting the wheels in motion to be more engaged in the community, which first involved getting more active on social media again which is not an easy thing to do actually even when you want to it's just it can be it can be a time suck so you have to like structure it in a way that it's productive and you're talking to people that you want to be talking to um but that you don't just sit there and stare at it for eight hours a day but more exciting than that is we actually started up a muscles by brussels facebook group yeah, in particular, I've just been excited about even having the opportunity to become more engaged with the community. And with this group thing that we thought about, I'm really glad that we took action on it because I feel like, you know, we, we've we been all about building community in general over the past nine or so years that we've done this, but we've never really had our own little um, community out there that, that we engage in specifically. We've kind of just kept creating things and then... Um, basically putting it out there to the community at large. So with the Muscles by Brussels group, uh, it's it's like our chance to directly connect with you guys, you know, and figure out what you like about the podcast, what you want to see more of, what questions you have. And, you know, we can talk about things that we're interested in. Uh, and, or even dive into some of the topics we talk about here in mm-hmm. a little bit more detail or a little bit more specifically to the questions that you guys have about them, I guess. And that's exactly it. Because like we have our own things that we talk about, right? But these 
these topics might spark questions or, or uh, feedback from you guys that we would have otherwise not thought of. You know what I mean? So it'll be really interesting for me to see what you guys get out of this on the other side, as opposed to, you know, the what, what we get out of uh, talking about these um, subjects. Yeah. Um, so go ahead and you can just search. In the, well, it's linked to the Vegan Proteins Facebook page, but you could also just search in the search bar Muscles by Brussels Radio, and now there is a group there, so feel free to go ahead and join it. It does ask you a couple questions when you join, and that's to make sure that people are not trolls or bots or anything like that, so please answer them, because um, we've seen a lot of Facebook groups kind of derail into just chaos over time, and we really, really don't want to see that happen, so we're going to be pretty strict about who we let in, I guess. So yeah, that should be really exciting. Which brings us actually to our podcast topic. The very first person to join the group and the very first person to post in the group had a suggestion and we thought it would be a really cool thing to like honor that suggestion and show that, yeah, like what you guys ask for, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, we do have a pretty big list of stuff that we, topics we brainstormed, um, that you know may be interesting to people, uh, but somebody specifically asked, and it's for Ken Blake, who is a listener and had nothing but nice things to say. And he mentioned that in the last podcast, I said something about people who want to look like bodybuilders but not compete, and how I could do a whole podcast on that. And he said his ears perked up. So that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about bodybuilding for non-competitors. Uh, what that means, what that entails, is it possible, is it worth it, and all sorts of things like that. So I think the way that I kind of want to broach this subject is talking about bodybuilding as a sport in and of itself, because a lot of people, I think just Doing this over the years, or at least the way that I thought of it, and I've seen other people think about it, is basically like, all right, well, if you, you know, if you really enjoy bodybuilding and you're doing it for a while, the way to take it to the next level is to compete on stage. And, uh, and I think that holds true in a lot of circles in the gym. It's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm all about my fitness and I'm doing this consistently and I'm making all these gains. And it's like, well, what do I do now? I want to take this to the next level, bro. Uh, I want to compete. And it's like, no, that is not that, that 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 is one facet of bodybuilding. It does not, it's it does not define the sport as like the highest level um, that you can go. Uh, if that makes any sense. Well, I think there's two two ways to think about bodybuilding. One is bodybuilding as, as a sport, which is the competition, and bodybuilding as a verb, actually building your body, and people thinking that that one needs to lead into competing and I would say that they're not even close to the same thing like they're not even they're, not only are they not close but they're almost at like different ends of the spectrum in that bodybuilding as a verb building your body that can be healthy that can be a healthy thing that can be mm -hmm. overall fitness that you uh, cultivate for the rest of your life. Whereas bodybuilding, the sport competing is inherently unhealthy. It is inherently bad for you. I'm going to say it one more time. <laughs> bodybuilding competing. And I say this as a competitor who loves the sport beyond all reason is inherently not good for your health. I'm not, I'm not like picking on bodybuilding here. Any sport taken to a high level of competition is not healthy for you. It is not fitness. Professional football players, um, professional rugby players, professional swimmers. Do they have fitness within their own sport? Yes, the specificity for their sport is great. Is competing at professional levels good for their overall health? No. A big, fat, resounding no. People will have health complications from competing at elite levels mm -hmm. in one way or another. Maybe yep. it's not like, 
oh, you've absolutely destroyed your overall health. Maybe it's just like you have a bum shoulder for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and bodybuilding is not different than anything else. When you take it to that level, you are waving goodbye, at least temporarily, to your health goals. And that's important to really understand. Yeah, yeah. And now that we're talking about how competing versus bodybuilding as a verb are pretty much on opposite ends of the spectrum, it kind of reminds me of a conversation we had um, in the car. I think it was like after our the last time we competed, and we were saying how it was pretty ironic how <laughs> it's called bodybuilding, but once you get deep into contest prep, you're doing anything but building. I mean, like you literally have to sacrifice some lean muscle tissue at the end of your prep to get down to the, the elite levels of leanness and conditioning that you need to compete on stage. Yeah, and you're spending probably like 80% of your time in a catabolic state once you're below a certain body fat percentage. So yeah, that's definitely true. But still, it comes up. I would say probably every other inquiry coaching inquiry that we receive, right? Like about 50% Mm -hmm. says something along the lines of, you know, when it says, tell us more about your goals. It says something along the lines of, you know, I want to lose body fat and and build muscle. I want to look like I compete, but I don't actually want to compete. And I don't think people understand what that means. And every time I hear it or read it, I cringe a little bit because I'm, I'm never quite sure. You know, with an inquiry, it's, you're not going to sit down and have like a podcast length conversation with them about why what they just said is a complete fallacy. Um, so I'm not really sure how to quickly tackle the topic of like, well, that's probably not going to happen just so you know, Mm -hmm. um, But that's what this podcast is for, is to talk about, you know, I want to look like I compete, but I don't actually want to compete. Can it be done, basically? Should it be done? So I think that it's important to really define and then redefine what exactly bodybuilding should be for, for the majority of people getting into it and how it should be viewed. You know, um, there, there's still, there is still this culture that very much so believes that competing is the, the way to go. Um, not, not realizing that that shouldn't be the end goal um, the majority of the time. And it, you know what I mean? It's like you can be a bodybuilder and not get to the point where you're becoming catabolic just to cash in on your bulk with a, you know, with a nice cut to get conditioned. Um, you can get to a state where you're fairly conditioned after you've been gaining for a while and to do it in a, in a healthy manner. Yes, but you just said fairly conditioned. Uh huh. People who are competing are not fairly conditioned. They're shredded to the point that it hurts. Yeah. So I think the first thing to notice is when people say, I want to look like I compete, they don't actually. Most people don't want to look like they compete. Um, even aesthetically, most people don't want to look like they compete. Um, This is a sweeping generalization, and maybe this doesn't apply to the people who are listening to this podcast right now, but most women will look at other women in competition shape and kind of say, like, ew, that's gross. Um, Obviously, that's not me and not a lot of my friends. We don't think that. But the general population, yeah, they don't like that look. Um, And even, not to the same degree, but even some men, when they see people that are so shredded and veiny and just absolutely peeled. They look like an anatomy lesson. Most men don't actually want to look like that. So when people say, I want to look like I compete, but I don't really want to compete. I think what most people want to say or mean to say is I want to look like a fitness model, but I don't actually want to be a fitness model because fitness models have that. um, How did you word it? fair level of con- uh, conditioning that you just mentioned, but not that extreme level of conditioning. You know, the other thing that I think is important to note is that in order to look good on stage, you got to look a little sick in person. And I think people don't realize that. Yeah, that is absolutely true. <laughs> and we've said it before, but like when you, when your family and friends start gen- genuinely asking you like, are you okay? You're like, yes, I'm getting there. <laughs> 
Um, and it's really twisted. Yeah. Um, but back to my point, mm -hmm. uh, was that can people get to a fitness model level of conditioning in a healthy manner? For most people, the answer is probably yeah. 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 And I think that's what most people that say that actually mean, and that's what they actually want. And I do think that's possible. It's just gonna take a slightly different route. Right. And, you know, I think in, in the world where we want everything basically on demand, you know, especially these bodies that are just being shown to us on display all the time with Instagram pictures and whatnot, we're like, oh, you know, I just, I want to do like a 12 week transformation and then I'm just going to be lean looking and awesome all the time. And I could just build off of that. And I'm like, no, no, that's not the way it goes. Right, because those 12-week transformations are not happening in 12 weeks. The dieting is happening in 12 weeks, and the dieting is happening with the knowledge that you're not going to maintain it. The work before that could have taken a year yeah. or more. Yeah, exactly. But I think another important thing to note is that if you're making that sort of a, a drastic change in 12 weeks, that it's, it's not necessarily sustainable long-term. You know what I mean? And also, the fact of the matter is that a lot of people that are making these 12 week transformations for the first time, um, you know, yeah, it took a year to build and get to that point. But like, if you want to keep changing your body in that fairly conditioned state, you're going to have to start building again. And I don't think people realize that. I think we've covered in other topics why getting to actually look like you compete, that peeled level is not a good idea for somebody who doesn't compete. What would the, what would the purpose of there is no purpose to doing that other than to look a certain way on stage. It's not even attractive to the general population, <laughs> right? The yeah. only reason people do it is to look a certain way, compete in a sport, win a trophy. Um, alternatively, if somebody really wants to just take their body to that level just to say they did it, which is valid, it's your body, you do what you want with it, um, I feel like it's almost impossible to do without a deadline. You need to know there's an end to this. Um, so for a lot of people, and I have worked with some women who have done this, we set up a photo shoot. So they get to set up a photo shoot rather than a competition. And they get their pictures taken in this, you know, incredible shape. But then it's over. And then we put some body fat back on. So I do think that's an option for people um, but even the amount of time and the suffering that would go into even that might be not worth it just to get a cool set of pictures. But that is an option. I think if you don't have a deadline at the end, then you're just dieting, dieting, dieting yourself into a gro the ground until you literally can't do it anymore. And there will be a point where you can't do it anymore. And you just have to start eating more and you will put some body fat back on. Um, or you will stay in an incredibly unhealthy state. So that is the only condition that I would suggest, you know, getting stage lean without stepping on stage is under that one condition that there is a deadline. It will end. You need to know going into it. Uh, it is not sustainable. Um, and that's a, that's a tough, that's a tall order actually. You know, yeah, I mean, going into it, you can tell yourself over and over again that you're going to be able to, to be all right with it, like mentally, but it's a bit of a mindfuck when you get to see this sort of change and all of a sudden you get to put it on display for yourself and, uh, and you know, took you, what, 12 to 20 weeks to get there, then all of a sudden you're going to undo it in like, I don't know, four to, four to eight tops. Yeah, and you know unfortunately, I mean? everybody around you will think that you've let yourself go and that... Even as a competitive figure athlete, that still irks me and gets under my skin to this day that when you put some weight back on after the competition, suddenly people think that you like slipped up or something. Well, you know, I think, you know, what the other issue is, is that when you call yourself a bodybuilder, people almost feel like it's appropriate to comment on the change. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? So you're almost like signing up for it. Yeah, no, you are for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so but, you can't even complain. But, yeah. Uh, 
But anyway, let's talk about the the rest. The mm-hmm. rest of the people that have a, a slightly more moderate goal in mind, and maybe they just kind of worded it incorrectly because they don't understand the sport of bodybuilding. And who would understand the sport of bodybuilding if you weren't immersed in the culture? So I certainly don't hold that against anybody. Um, but let's talk about the people who have more like fit model. You know, they want to be mu- they want to be mu- well muscled. They want to be pretty lean, um, but not a super extreme in either direction. Let's talk about what training and nutrition would look like for those people versus competitors. Let's talk about that. Okay, fair enough. Um, I think you need to, before you figure out where you're going with this, as far as like, you know, when you want to cut and what you want to look like temporarily and long term, I think the first question you have to ask yourself and you have to answer it honestly is where are you now? How many years have you been training? Um, How many years have you been eating with the intention of, of bodybuilding? And then I guess to, you know, to, to basically narrow down the focus a little more, you have to kind of ask yourself, well, how long have you been training um, consistently and hard? And how long have you really been dialing in your nutrition? And, uh, and I don't just mean by like eating a certain amount of protein and, uh, you know, hitting a certain amount of sets and reps and, and intensity. I mean, like with a purpose, you know what I mean? And figure out like where your habits lie, because before you start to go into any sort of uh, aggressive transformation, you need to be prepared for it. I mean, mentally is a whole different story, but I'm talking like just on paper, you know, like knowing how to meal prep, for example, is something you would not want, you know, you would want to know how to at least meal prep and weigh and measure out food before you would start a cut, for example. But I think you just said something and I want to backpedal that sure. a little bit. You said an aggressive transformation. And what I'm talking about are people that don't need an aggressive transformation. Because aggressive transformations Mm -hmm. don't last. We're talking about people that want a a lifestyle transformation that in turn will show up on their body. Okay. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I I still think everything you said makes perfect sense, but I just want to make sure people don't think we're not talking about a 12 week bulk and a 12 week cut. We're talking about long term bodybuilding goals for fitness, health, longevity, all those things that. You don't care about when you're competing, okay. right? Um, obviously, I mean, I care about them for my clients, <laughs> you know, that are not competing. But uh, yeah, when you're actually competing, you just know that you're going to not be super healthy in order to have that aggressive transformation. Anyway. True. So, um, so yeah, I think you need to do exactly what you said. The first step is really assess where you're at in terms of training, in terms of nutrition, in terms of habits, in terms of mindset. Um, I think that's really super important. And then from there, you know, I guess bigger questions that a lot of people have. If you're not competing in bodybuilding or some category of bodybuilding, do you need to bulk and cut? That's a huge question that a lot of people have. And shoot, maybe that's a podcast in and of itself. So here's a long and a short answer for me. I would say that some people, uh, you know, can be perfectly okay with just pretty much staying at the same level and slowly trading muscle for fat over time. Whereas other people might appreciate slowly bulking or slowly cutting and then switching from, from one to the other. And I think it depends on the person. And I'll elaborate on that a little bit. I think that after you take that assessment of yourself and where you're at, If you can honestly say that you have committed to, you know, eating enough food and eating enough protein and training with progressive overload for at least a bare minimum of a year, then perhaps you can consider if you want to build or if you want to get a little bit leaner and pick a direction and move in that direction. But for most people that do that assessment honestly... They're going to say, no, I, I haven't been really great about eating enough and eating enough protein and, and training regularly with progressive overload. And if you're that person, then I don't think you need to focus on building or cutting. I think you just need to focus on building those habits um, of eating enough to support your training, but not so much that you gain weight. Basically eating at maintenance calories and eating enough protein. That change right there is enough to make 
a lot of change happen on your physique. And then finding a training program that works to get you stronger and basically finding a training program that trains intelligently with progressive overload. If you're eating at maintenance and eating enough protein, you can do that for literally a year, a year and a half, two years, and see outstanding change in your body without ever having to worry about, do I want to build more muscle or do I want to get leaner? Like people that are asking that question should already have one to two years of like really good habits under their belt. Um, and then after that, then you can kind of pick a direction. And I think it's also good to understand like where your body can take things without you having to manipulate too much. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of times, you know, the fitness industry definitely feeds this kind of neuroses of wanting to constantly pull a trigger and like make a big change, whether it's with your training, like, Oh, I'm going to try this new crazy six day CrossFit Metcons. Uh, and that's going to change my, or like, you know, I'm going to try this high carb, low fat or, or keto or, or intermittent fasting. Like I'm going to do some crazy, you don't need to do any of that until you have serious, serious good habits built up first and just really boring moderation across the board consistently over time will make better changes in your physique than anything else. Consider it the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. You know, it's the bottom of the, you know, the, the nutrient timing and, you know, your exact exercise selection. All those things are higher up on that pyramid of importance than just consistently eating enough, eating enough protein, training regularly with progressive overload. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it's like, this is your foundation. This is at the core of what you do. It's, it's going to, to make what you do sustainable as a lifestyle. You know, all these other things like Danny was mentioning, like kettle this or uh, Metcon that, like, you know, they'll, they'll have results for you. But then it's like, what happens when you're done with your, your 12-week program? It's like, what's your fallback? You know, you're not going to be doing keto for like the rest of your life, for example. I hope not. <laughs> yeah, right? So it's like, what happens when that stops? Then what do you do? Like, if you don't have your fallback, if you don't have your foundation there, you know, you're, you're basically, your plan is built in a house of cards and mm -hmm. you're set up for failure. Yeah. But let's say you're the person who has built these habits. First of all, give yourself a little pat on the back because it's not easy and it's, it's the most important step and it's the one that probably most people fail at, honestly. So if you have that, under your belt and you do want to pick a direction do i want to bulk or like i don't even like to use the word bulk because that sounds like you're putting on a ton of weight and it's not something that you have to do uh, do i want to focus on building muscle and getting a bit bigger or do i want to focus on losing some body fat and getting a bit leaner um, which direction you go from there is almost always up to personal preference um, and what you feel most strongly about wanting to do really you know, all assuming you've been eating enough for a long period of time, you could go in either direction. But the difference between a competitive bodybuilder and just a general bodybuilder um, who's not going to compete but who just wants to build their body, usually it's just a little bit less extreme in terms of how much you add in terms of calories or how much you decrease in terms of calories. Whereas like for example, my off-season to my low days on my competition prep, they dropped a thousand calories. That's disgusting. Overnight. Um, if you're not competing, there's no reason anybody would ever have to do that. Um, you know, a, a much more moderate 250 to 500 calorie slash per day, maybe adding in 10 to 15 minutes of, of cardio or even just movement will be enough to get somebody on the path to getting leaner without putting their hormones or their moods or their training in jeopardy. So how would, how would training differ for a competitive bodybuilder versus a non-competitive bodybuilder? Hmm. Oh boy. Uh, so a competitive versus a non-competitive athlete, I think the progressive overload gets way more extreme for a competitive athlete to the point where like you're, you could potentially be risking injury and stressing out your connective tissue so much 
that all sorts of things can happen. Like, you know, your connective tissue just basically fails on you, whether it's by way of an impingement or a muscle spasm or, oh, geez, like a tear or any sort, any number of things can happen when you're constantly pushing your limits and your recovery time is just as minimal as it needs to be so that you're not going to be like on the verge of risking injury again only two weeks later. Like that's, that would be my thoughts on uh, competitive training as a competitor versus not. Yeah, I think that's true. But overall, I don't think the training needs to be that different for a competitive versus a non-competitive bodybuilder. I think the biggest change that I would recommend, I guess, is just maybe... I mean, it's there's really no way to quantify it. it would just be you don't have to push it quite as hard um, as a non-competitive bodybuilder. Like you said, if you push it to a certain degree, you're at a higher risk for injury. And as a non-competitive bodybuilder, you don't have to push it quite that hard. What does that mean? <laughs> um, well, how you push it, really, there's so many different ways to quote-unquote push it. Uh, in terms of weight training, is that the actual amount of weight you're lifting, which would be the intensity? Is it the volume? Is it your frequency? Like, do you need more days off during the week? Um, you know, as a competitive bodybuilder, sometimes you can feel I am really pushing my limits right now. Um, but I, I have to, if I want to get these results, I got to keep pushing it. Whereas a non-competitive bodybuilder can definitely be, they can afford to be a little bit more in tune with their own body, their own recovery. You know, if they're waking up day after day, like kind of tired and run down, stopping and being like, okay, I need to reassess here. Like maybe I need an extra day off from the gym. Maybe I can redistribute my volume. Maybe I need to bring my intensity down a little bit um, so that I can be recovering better. But the overall principles of progressive overload, you know, the workouts need to become more challenging over time, bit by bit by bit. Um, and I think that holds true across the board. And I think that's what most people love the most about bodybuilding is the training. And that I think is probably the most constant thing between competitive bodybuilders and non-competitive bodybuilders. Essentially, they can train it almost the exact same. It's just that if a non-competitive bodybuilder says, oh, I feel like shit today, I'm going to take today off, eh, not that big of a deal. Whereas somebody in competition prep, in a deficit, if they feel like shit, too bad. You have to go get it done, basically, you know, to a degree. Um, so yeah, I think that if you look at all the different aspects of bodybuilding competitive and otherwise this is the most similar the training and i think if anything the non-competitive bodybuilders have an advantage when it comes to their training because they never really have to worry about these periods of time where they're basically fighting to not lose muscle if anything like they're just in a in in, in a place where they could maintain and or build pretty much all of the time. Well, their their training isn't going to oscillate. Their tra training quality isn't going to oscillate wildly depending on what they're doing. You know, there's always going to be good days and bad days. And if you are building muscle, your workouts are probably going to be a little bit better because you're going to have a lot more nutrients floating around your body. Um, and if you're cutting, they might be a little bit more challenging because there's less nutrients floating around your body. But you, overall, it's not that huge of a change. Whereas a competitive bodybuilder at the height of their off season is basically like a monster in the gym um, because they have so many, they're in such a caloric surplus, generally speaking. Um, and then once they start prep, they're in such a caloric deficit that the difference in their training quality is enormous. Um, so yeah, I do think that non-competitive bodybuilders do have an edge with their training over competitive bodybuilders. Your training quality is going to be better overall than a competitive bodybuilder, I think. Yeah, especially long-term. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely long-term. Because when a competitive bodybuilder comes out of prep, there's like, even after the prep is over, there's several months of just getting re-acclimated 
to like lifting heavier and gaining weight so your leverages change. What about your hormones? And your hormones change quite a bit. <laughs> uh, so yeah, non-competitive bodybuilders definitely have the edge there. Um, but food is probably the biggest difference between competitive bodybuilders and non-competitive bodybuilders. Uh, even in the off-season, even in a muscle-building phase, a mass-building phase, um, competitive bodybuilders are probably going to push their surplus as much as they can, even when it pushes their body fat past where they're comfortable. I mean, is that optimal? I'm, I'm still not totally sure, but I know that it happens a lot. Um, and it happens deliberately, even. Whereas somebody who's not looking to compete, again, you don't need to push your body fat a higher than a point where you're not comfortable with it anymore. So you don't need to go into a giant caloric surplus pretty much ever. You just need to be in a moderate caloric surplus in order to build muscle and keep, you know, lifting more weight at the gym. And then cutting or getting leaner. I mean, I think getting leaner just sucks across the board. Like, nobody has a lot of fun getting leaner because you're hungrier. But it's just a different kind of hunger when you're on prep. I would say it's way more tolerable if you're not trying to take anything to the extreme, basically. Non-competitive bodybuilding doesn't have to be extreme the way people make it out to be. And you can still look damn good. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, overall, the caloric deficit is going to be much smaller than somebody who is in competition prep, and therefore it's going to be a lot more tolerable. But also, because it's a smaller deficit, you're able to stay in it for longer. Um, you know, my, my thousand calorie deficit that happened overnight, I was able to maintain that for a whopping two weeks. Um, that's not going to do most people much good. It served its purpose for me. Um, but you know, at 250 calorie deficit, you could maintain that, um, for quite a while and, and get results from it for quite a while without much suffering in terms of hunger or training. So that is another major difference. So what I like to think about bodybuilding and competitive bodybuilding as, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, is very much so like a pendulum. Um, where you have contest prep all the way in one direction and the end of an off season, like the end of a bulk all the way in the other direction. And every time you compete, you want that pendulum to swing a little bit less in each direction, um, in terms of how hard you have to diet to get shredded or how much body fat you have to gain in order to build muscle. You want it to sort of settle somewhere in the middle, but non-competitive bodybuilding uh, enthusiasts never have to go to either one of those extremes in the first place. So their pendulum, so to speak, uh, swings a much shorter distance. And because of that, they're able to uh, maintain their health and fitness and a social life and relationships and all sorts of things like that. Sanity? Do you mean to say sanity? Sanity. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, the, you know, there are some people who, and I think Giacomo wanted to talk about this, who can eventually more or less hang out right in the middle of where that pendulum is. I guess the thing to think about is that, that there's no one-size-fits-all, basically, for that. And the point in which you could hang out in the middle like that is going to vary wildly from person to person. There are going to be some people that, quite frankly, can do it from the very first day they look at the weights and yes. decide, like, I'm going to eat a protein. <laughs> it's like, the body's <laughs> like, well, we were already here anyway, and now you're just giving us superpowers. Okay. <laughs> and those are generally ectomorphs. For the most part. In general. Almost everybody I know that is able to just, you know, look pretty muscular, but also pretty lean all the time, those are ectomorphs because they can eat more and still look lean. So they always have enough nutrients running through their body, but they still look really lean. So they can kind of eat too much and lift weights and still look really lean. And that is a much easier place to be in, to sort of hang out in that, that middle 
real aesthetic place to be year round. Yeah. And I mean, there are other, you know, there are multiple variables, genetics and lifestyle um, that can play into it for that particular type of person as well. Like, did they have an athletic background? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, where did they grow less fat cells than other people for whatever reason, depending on their, uh, their, the way that they ate as a kid, for example, like, any number of things are they, are they genetically inclined to hold on to more muscle, whether they're an ectomorph or, or endomorph? Like all of these things come into play, and like you can basically have a genetic freak that can literally start training and eating whatever they want, basically from day one, and hang out in that and place. look pretty damn good. Yeah, but I mean that really is only I would say that's probably only like ten percent of people. If that, unfortunately, those ten percent of people are the ones that everybody wants to listen to, and I don't really understand that. Anyway, I'm, mm. I'm getting off tangent, but my point is, the genetic elite, not necessarily the people that you want to be listening to. Uh, not that they're not necessarily. You know, they could be very well-educated and know exactly what they're talking Mm -hmm. about, or they could just not have a freaking clue what they're doing and look phenomenal. So, um, but most people, you know, let's say the longer that you are at this, and I think this is what you were getting at before in a clip that will be edited out of this podcast because it didn't make any sense. (laughs) Um, the longer you are at this, the better you're going to look in general, and the more likely you'll be able to maintain a look that you like year-round. Yeah, I mean, more or less, I guess that's what I was saying. Um, and uh, and just, just to reiterate, I mean, like, it's going to be very different for some people. Some people are going to have to be at it a lot longer. So I guess my point that I was trying to make before is, like, you take, you take, uh, you, you weight yourself against someone who's, say, quote-unquote, genetically elite, and you're like, I want to look like that and be in the middle year-round and um, is it possible and I mean the answer is maybe your end result is going to look different I mean everyone's end result is going to be is going to look different and honestly you really don't know what that end result is going to be until you get there And I think it's kind of the beauty of the sport itself you know what I mean it's like you're taking your genetics your physique and you're dedicating yourself and investing in yourself for the long term and, uh, and, you know, some people can get there in three to four years. Some people can, you know, can get there in seven to eight years. Some people need more than that. But I, I think the bottom line for me is that as, as a natural athlete, every single one of us has our own genetic ceiling. And when I say genetic ceiling, I mean basically the point at which you have attained the, the maximum allowable muscle that your that your skeleton will hold and and maintain and like after you get to that point there's really not too much changing um now whether you were able to stay in the middle like from day one and just continue to improve on that or whether like it takes a while for you to to get like that year-round uh, for lack of a better word aesthetic or condition look like by by 10 plus years into this game you're gonna pretty much know what you're able to maintain year round because you'll have as much muscle on your body as possible and everyone has different body weight set points and it's like at your body weight set point in theory if you have more muscle you're naturally going to have less fat and you could pretty much eat at maintenance around that around that level and um you know as the years go that it will look better and better but you really don't know what your end result is going to look like until you go there okay so we've talked about these things on a on a broader, more philosophical scale, right? Like, what does this big picture thing look like? And what are you getting into? And, um, you know, what are the advantages to doing it this way, basically, like, both mentally and physically, how to how to be a, a healthy person, and to do it in a sustainable fashion, where it's like, it doesn't need to be extreme to get these results that years down the road will argue, arguably be extreme. So I guess the, I guess to, um, to backpedal a little bit, like, well, okay, that's all well and good. So we know that this is something to do. How do we do it? And, you know, I, I think I think it's important to to sort of ask these questions to yourself, like what what are the basic habits right now that we can put on our checklist to make sure that we are are ready to advance ourselves? And uh I think you know, I think it's easier to, to take a look at nutrition first because that's the, the one thing that I would say most people focus on less in the beginning. So, you know, we take a look at our checklist here and like what's the most important thing? 
are we eating enough? And what I mean to say by are we eating enough, like are we trying to be diet doctors from day one or are we eating at maintenance? Are we eating enough for our body to sustain itself and to put on some lean body mass? And I think you really have to be honest with yourself. When you're getting to the gym, are you able to, especially like the first one to two years, and if you're not able to consistently see yourself getting stronger at the gym, like getting in more weight, more volume, more total pounds lifted, training hard. If, if that's not happening on a fairly consistent basis, like every other week or every third week at the absolute most, then, then, then you are not eating at maintenance. And I think you, you have to figure out what that is for yourself. Okay. If you are eating at maintenance, great. Step number two. Step number two is to figure out how much protein you're eating. And the way to do that is to track your food. Are you tracking your food yet? If you're tracking your food, great. Figure out how much protein you're eating. Now, protein is the one macronutrient that can't be stored. So if you're not eating the amount that you, that you desire to eat every day to, to build muscle, well, then that's something very important to change. And that should be uh, at the core of every muscle building program. Like, find out the amount of protein that you need for yourself and make sure you're getting that in more often than not on a daily basis. So step number three um, is really, really simple, but pretty important is just to make sure that you're staying hydrated. Uh, that's a habit that should be ingrained in you regardless of your bodybuilding goals. Stay hydrated. I would say uh, if you're training, you know, four plus days a week, at least three liters of water a day for any adult is very, I mean, that's pretty minimal, I think. And it seems unimportant for bodybuilding goals, but actually it's quite important for bodybuilding goals. Um, hydrated cells are much more anabolic and hydrated fat cells are much, much more likely to be burned off as fuel. So yeah, staying hydrated. And if you want to begin to look at supplementation, I would say step four would be to take creatine. I think anybody that lifts weights should be taking creatine, male, woman, um, doesn't matter. Newbie, long-time lifter, uh, I would say anywhere between three to five grams of creatine per day, depending on if you're like a smaller woman or maybe even six grams if you're a pretty big dude. Um, but yeah, between three and six grams of creatine per day is definitely going to assist you in continuing to hit PRs in the gym and you will not build muscle if you are not consistently getting stronger. And that's really it. I mean, that's where the supplement list starts and stops uh, in the beginning because you're going to get the most of your, your gains from your nutrition, not from your supplements. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now, you know, now we, we've got our nutrition, we got our foundation. The next thing that we should look at is our training. What, what, what are we doing with training over here? I mean, we're, we're getting to the gym. Um, I think obviously the, the most important thing here is are we getting to the gym consistently? Like, have you spent a bare to bones minimum of six months? I would say at least six months getting to the gym. And I don't mean like training for a month and then taking two, two, three weeks off and then getting back to the gym and training three weeks and then taking a month off. I mean like literally training every single week for six months straight. For at least three days a week. Yeah. And I think three days a week, a lot of people think three days a week isn't enough to really start lifting. And I think three days a week as a newbie lifter is perfectly fine and even good. Three days a week is awesome, actually, as a starting place, in my opinion. Well, there's this constant theory with bodybuilding that more is better. I know. And it's not the case. Like, sometimes you need to recover and, um, and you need to make room for growth. And if you just, like, do everything all at once, something is going to collapse the seams, basically. So, yeah, more is better, but, like, over time, like, over a very long period of time, the first thing you need to do is, uh, is to establish balance and a foundation. So if you can look at your schedule and see that you're, you've been training for six months consistently for like three days a week, it's a good time to start looking at your program and make sure you're actually hitting your whole body. Um, it's a stereotype that is unfortunately often true is a lot of new bodybuilders train their upper bodies only and completely skip their lower body. And that leads to a very unbalanced physique. Um, so you want to make sure that you're doing a variety of compound movements. Um, and I say compound movements because they're critical for building mass and building up tolerance to just lifting weight. So 
You don't have to do all of these, but I would definitely encourage you to try to get in some kind of a squat. Doesn't have to be a barbell squat, but like a squat or a hack squat or a leg press, just something that mimics that motion. Um, some kind of a deadlift, some kind of a row, some kind of an overhead motion, like an overhead press or a dumbbell press, some kind of a pull down motion, like a lat pull down or a pull up, and some kind of a press, like a bench press or a dumbbell bench press. If you do nothing but these things, you will have massive, massive gains in the first six months. So a squat, a deadlift, an overhead press, a flat press, a row, and a pull down. That is six exercises I just said. If you want to throw in some biceps, triceps, and calves, have at it. But that all together, that's eight exercises. If you do nothing but that and split it up over three days a week, you will see impressive growth in the first six months to a year. Yeah, totally. There's this misconception out there that you need to train things in isolation basically to see them grow. And while that, that will work, it will work to a point. Like you can only hit your muscles so hard in isolation. And if you don't train them synergistically with compound movements, um, the, the end game will happen far sooner than later. So yeah, Danny's absolutely right with that. And start off with those those compound movements will actually be advantageous for you. Incredibly advantageous. And most people don't learn them first, unfortunately, myself included. I learned all isolation movements first and learned compound movements probably a couple years down the road. And I really think that my initial newbie gain phase suffered for that. And if I could go back and do it differently, I totally, totally would. So yeah, those are definitely the most important ones. And even if you just do, you know, three sets of each one for eight to 12 reps every week. That's, you could do that and nothing else for a year and change your physique significantly. Top to bottom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's, that can be a hard sell for some people. Cause they're like, well, you know, I got into bodybuilding cause like this area of my body's weak or that area of my body's weak. But like the truth of the matter is that those muscle groups will be forced to progress and with with your stronger muscles at the same time in order for you to get stronger and it's like they'll have to keep up with the other ones so you know you will inevitably grow your your weaker muscle groups as well with compound movements yeah and i know that the gym is really enticing because there's like you know 50 different machines and all these everybody's doing something different so it's really easy to get kind of caught up in the hype of all these weird little exercises but the ones that i just listed uh with the exception of literally like biceps triceps and calves uh, they are literally the only thing that you really need to be doing until you are in a late intermediate stage. Yeah. yeah even as a bodybuilder. Yeah, exactly. And, um, so now, so let's say, you know, you're getting all these, these compound movements in, you've been training for six months consistently and you're getting stronger and you're getting stronger. I think at this point, if you haven't already, and it could be a really duh thing for, for most people, but believe, you know, you'd be surprised. Like, I think it's important to keep fairly detailed notes in a, a training journal of some sort and uh you know and to eventually take a look at that and to see how you can progress things so if this training information is a little bit overwhelming for you there's a lot of really great starting trainer programs online for free um a really popular one is five by five and if you just google five by five workout template it'll pop up also um Starting strength is fantastic. And eventually, maybe don't start with this one, but maybe six months in, maybe uh, Wendler's 531 is a good program. And all of these are uh, three or four days a week, so they don't require a huge time commitment. But they're very sound programs um, that incorporate a lot of the principles that we think are really important and really teach people how to lift with the um, fundamentals that you need for longevity in the sport long term. So I think that pretty much covers um, competitive bodybuilding versus non-competitive bodybuilding, at least from a very broad spectrum of like, what's the big difference um, and what you need to do to be bodybuilding, but without having to worry about a competition and sort of the in-betweens there. Um, so if you have any questions about this, feel free to shoot them at us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or even better, Join the Muscles by Brussels Facebook group. 
and we can, you know, dive into more lengthy discussions about this there as well. So, uh, yeah, join us if you're interested. Moving on to our question and answer segment this week. Um, We probably aren't going to have a a product to review every other week. Maybe we will, but as of right now, we don't. So we're skipping that segment today. Um, All right, this one's for Giacomo. Macro question. I'm five foot one, 125 pounds, and want to lose fat and gain more lean muscle, so not overly bothered about losing weight. I'm pretty active, do daily yoga, three times a week bouldering, one hit body weight session, and cycle to and from work. Does around 1,400 calories with 40 carb, 30 protein, 30 fat. Sound like an okay split. Uh, Thanks. And those are percentages, so 40% carb, 30% fat, 30% protein. Right. So looking at this question and breaking it down, I guess my first question to this person would be, do they know how much they've been eating? That is always like, uh, that is always going to be the very first question. If you don't know how much you've been eating, you can't just throw out arbitrary numbers. Um, So if they do know how much they've been eating and they want to take where they are now and they want to change it to the point where they're basically body recomping, they're gaining they're gaining lean muscle and losing body fat. Um, what they basically have to do was to make sure that they're not at a surplus, and um, you know maybe they're they're uh, reducing. I mean, like were, were they gaining weight before? I don't know, so it's kind of hard to answer. But um, I would basically put them at either maintenance or slight slightly below maintenance because they don't really want to start cutting. They just want to gain muscle and lose body fat. So let's just say this person. Uh, didn't did know how much they were eating if they if they knew that they were having maybe like 15 1600 calories a day and they were asking me if they wanted to to start at around 1400 calories then my answer would be yes that that is a good that is a good base right there um the other uh, second part of this uh second part of this um example is is broken down into percentages and that's i guess another thing that I would um, basically say that you know you you don't ever want to go by percentages. When I when I hear like forty thirty thirty, I'm thinking to myself that you know this this was this was broken down by percentages, not by you know not by what this person needs to to sustain their muscles. And uh, basically, what you want to do is figure out how much protein you need, and that's for most people it's going to be between roughly 0.8 to 1.2 grams of protein per pound of body weight, I would say. Um, that And, you know, incidentally, 30% of 1,400 calories does fall within that range. But let's just say this person was eating more or less, it might fall out of range. So you never want to start with percentages. You want to start with your protein and figure out how much you need to go, to get in every day. Um, because that, that is the one, like I was saying earlier, it's the one macronutrient that's not stored. So you really want to make sure that you're getting in the appropriate amount for your body every day. And then as far as carbs and fats go, you know, that's somewhat a matter of personal preference. I usually like to err on the side of higher carbs because carbs are easier to convert into fuel. And when you're, um, trying to gain muscle, you basically want easier access to your fuel. That being said, you don't want to set your fat so low um, that it won't support, uh, your endocrine system. Like you want healthy hormones. So like, you know, you don't want to like set your fat to like say 15 grams, for example, to get as many carbs in as possible Those carbs are cool, you know? Um, so that's what I would say. Basically, I would say set your protein, don't use percentages, take your remaining calories, whatever they are, and then, you know, balance out the carbs and fats, but don't make the fats so low that, um, that your hormones will suffer as a result. All right, we got a question for Danny over here. Do you have any recommendations for high-protein meals that are gluten, soy, pea, almond, and peanut-free? I recently did a food sensitivity test, blood lab, and it turns out that I have a sensitivity to all of these foods. As a strength athlete, I want to keep inflammation as low as possible for faster recovery and performance, and I'm finding it difficult for the first time in my vegan life to get enough protein. Any suggestions? Yeah, so I actually thought about this question a lot over the week. 
Um, and I have a lot of thoughts. So first I'll give you my suggestions for foods that kind of fit in that profile of being, let me get this right, I have to read it. Soy, pea, so soy, gluten, pea, almond, and peanut free. So that's a tall order um, for a vegan strength athlete for sure. Uh, so it wasn't easy to come up with food items. So obviously there are a ton of foods that have protein in them that are not those things. Um, almost any kind of bean would be perfect here. And I would definitely recommend that if you have the carbs for them, for sure. If you don't have the carbs for them, a couple of things that might work. Uh, so the first one that came to my mind almost instantly was rice protein. I'm not a huge fan of rice protein as a drink. It's not very palatable, but it'll do if you need to have a protein shake with rice protein. But what I am a fan of rice protein for is any sort of baking that you need to do. Rice protein is a great way to add protein to it. And unlike pea and soy protein, because I think, because it's a, a protein from a grain, it tends to cook quite a bit better. So an example would be like making pancakes or waffles out of oat flour and rice protein. Um, a mixture of those two things would be a great way to add protein to a meal there. The next thing I thought of was the Explore Asian bean pastas. So obviously they have a soybean one that would be out, but they also have a black bean pasta that is about 25 grams of protein per serving and the ingredients in it are black beans and water. So I'm not sure, they must remove some of the starch or some of the fiber to make this happen because it's very high protein. Uh, and the next thing I thought of was greens, green vegetables, kale, collards, spinach, broccoli. While in a normal size serving, it's not a lot of protein. Like, uh, you know, 100 grams of broccoli has maybe four or five grams of protein. But when you're having a big plate of green vegetables and making them um, really like a, a base of some of your meals, you'd be surprised how much protein is actually in them over the course of a day. Of course, with this, you do have to keep an eye on fiber, which is going to go up as you eat that. And sometimes that can cause some digestional unrest. And then the last thing I thought of was um, hempe, which is tempeh made with hemp. And it has about the same macros as regular tempeh with a bit more fat, actually. Oh yeah, and Giacomo just jotted on a piece of paper, nooch, which was actually something I meant to write down and forgot, um, nutritional yeast. You sprinkle that shit on everything. Over the course of a day, you can get quite a bit of protein from nutritional yeast and it tastes good on just about everything. So if you were to make uh, Explore Asian pasta mac and cheese with nutritional yeast as a base for the cheese sauce, that dish could have like 60 grams of protein in it. Um, but I want to uh, add to this answer, not just to give you food ideas, but also it might be a good idea to reassess your macros at this point. You might benefit just from replacing some of your protein with carbohydrates or fats um, just to make it a little bit easier for you to reach your goals while still staying like within a good range for your strength athlete goals. Um, so I would definitely say don't be afraid to experiment a little bit with the macros here. Secondly, I would perhaps encourage you to go back and get this blood test done again in a couple of months. And the reason for this is because food sensitivity tests change all the time. Um, in my experience, they're not super reliable in that you could take the test, you know, a couple weeks apart and get different results both times. So while I agree with you as a strength athlete, you do want to keep unnecessary inflammation low. There is some data that says that your inflammation can become so low that you actually inhibit muscle growth. So that is definitely an interesting study to check out. And I believe I read the study in Mass, which is Monthly Applications of Science and Strength, I believe. Mass.com, mass I believe. Uh, definitely check it out. They did the um, 
they did the study on people taking ibuprofen as an anti-inflammatory, and what they found was when people's inflammatory markers dropped below a certain point, it definitely inhibited muscle protein synthesis and therefore muscle growth, which leads us to believe that there is a certain amount of inflammation that is necessary for muscle growth. Um, so while overall I agree with you, you don't want inflammation to be too high because it can definitely, you can get injured, you can get sick, lots of things can happen. Uh, you also don't want it to be at zero completely. Um, so definitely follow up with the blood tests because they're not always the most accurate thing. So I don't want you to just take it as gospel that you can never have peanuts or almonds or anything like that ever again when it could have just been a fluke that day. Um, or alternatively, if like the blood tests are too expensive to swing, you know, eliminate those things and then slowly... Um, one by one sort of re-add those things from like the least offensive thing. The thing that when you tested positive for it, the thing that surprised you, um, I would probably start with that thing because that's probably the one that is inaccurate um, and add that back in and just see how you feel, give it time, test it out, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, until you feel like maybe you add something and you're like, whoa, that definitely did suck. And I do feel different having added that back in, then that probably is a thing you shouldn't eat. Um, but yeah, if it's, if you're able to get it tested again, I would encourage you to do so just because you might surprise yourself when you see that you get different results each time. Um, but hopefully those meal suggestions help you and, uh, just gives you some stuff to chew on. Uh, literally, and then also like mentally, if you check, <laughs> check out that inflammation, uh, study, if you can find it. And if not, uh, feel free to reach out to me and I'll see if I can send it to you. Um, and I think that's it. And that concludes another episode of Vegan Proteins and Muscles by Brussels Radio. Feel free to keep in touch with us on the social medias at Vegan Proteins on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that fun stuff. And also uh, remember that we have our new Facebook group, and that is Muscles by Brussels. And that's where we'll be continuing the conversation on this podcast and opening up new ones. So we hope to see you out there and uh, connect. So do stay in touch. Once again, my name is Giacomo. And I'm Danny. And we'll see you in a couple weeks.